How are you doing today? My name is Kendall. I'm one of the pastoral interns here, and uh, I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. I hope that you got to experience the hope, the peace, the love, and the joy that Jesus brings this uh, holiday season. Really, that's our hope for this entire series. That's our hope uh, as we pray for you that you would have experienced the, uh, the unlikely in your life so that those around you would be able to, to feel, see, experience, to hear that joy, to hear that love, to hear that hope, and to hear that peace that you have in Jesus Christ. And as we're wrapping up here today, uh, we're going to be talking about the unlikely love that God gives us. But first, I'm going to do just a, a very quick review, uh, as we had already heard a little bit. What we heard in the first uh, three weeks is that God's message went to the most unlikely candidates. His message of hope went to Mary, who, as a virgin, was told that she was going to have a baby, but yet she had hope because the hope that God gave her through that message. Joseph was told that he was going to have to marry this woman who uh, was suddenly found herself pregnant, but yet he had peace. He had the peace that comes from God because of the message that the angels gave him through the, through the dream. And then last week, I was really privileged to talk to you about the joy that the shepherds had, these unlikely shepherds who were out in the fields, but yet they had joy because of the angel's message. And then just two days ago, in uh, one of the most beautiful Christmas services that I've ever been a part of, uh, we got to see the most incredible message of, of, of them all. We got to see God's most profound statement to the world that he loved us, that God so loved the world that he gave, and that he gave us his son. You see, that's the message of Advent. That's the message of Christmas, that God sends Jesus to unlikely people to mingle in unlikely places with those people because every single person is important to God. But now as I'm thinking about all of this, as thinking about where we've come from in our, in our survey in this unlikely advent, I'm thinking all of these things are things that God gives. He gives us hope in Christ. It's not something we manufacture. It's something that he gives to us because of our relationship with Jesus. He gives us peace. He gives us peace in our circumstances, peace in our faith because we are in Christ. He gives us joy. And most of all, he has showered us with love because of what Jesus Christ has done. It's a gift. It's his. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about what is our response? How will we respond here standing on the end of 2015? How will we respond to the gifts that God has given to us? What is going to be our response to the greatest gift that God has given to us, which is Jesus Christ? What will we do with Jesus moving forward in 2016? How will we respond to the one who has literally given us everything? Now, as we're thinking about that, turn with me to Matthew 2, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 12, and this, just to set this up, this is the last section of the birth narratives of Jesus. This is the last thing that is talked about as far as Jesus' birth narratives, and because of that, I think it's really, really, really important that we see what is going on in these passages. Now, just to set it up again, Jesus is about one or two years old in this passage. Mary and Joseph have transitioned out of the stable that they were in, and now they're in a home. They're living in Bethlehem, and life is starting to make sense. Life is starting to get some normalcy. People aren't showing up at their doorstep as much anymore. They're, they're getting into a routine. Joseph might have went back to work. Mary's kind of getting the house in order. Maybe she's unpacked her last box. Whatever it is, the dust is settled and these people, are, they're starting to get some normalcy. But yet what I love what God does is when we start to feel comfortable, he shakes things up. And in Matthew 2, we're going to be 
looking at something that happened that really shook things up. And what I really want us to gain from our time here today is that there's three fundamental ways for us to respond to Jesus. In Matthew 2, we see three people or three groups of people who had an opportunity to respond to Jesus. And what we learn about this passage is that there's two wrong ways to respond to Jesus, and then there's a right way to respond to Jesus. There's three fundamental ways to respond to Jesus. So turn with me to Matthew 2, and we're going to begin there. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all of the people, all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where was the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now again, there's three types of people in this passage that we really need to zoom the lens down upon. You've got Herod. You've got the, uh, the Jewish people, the religious leaders. And then you've got these wise men. And, and in these three groups of people, we see three fundamental ways that you can respond to God. So we're going to begin with Herod. This is the first wrong way that we can respond to God is by loving all the wrong things. The first way we can respond wrongly to God is by loving all the wrong things. See, Herod was the king of Israel during this time when Jesus is born, but that's completely unlikely because he wasn't a son of David. You see, back in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7, it says that David will always have a ruler sitting upon the throne. It will be an eternal reign. It will be an everlasting reign. And he will not, or there, there will always be someone from the line of David on the throne. But now why this is unlikely is as soon as we open the New Testament, we see that there's not a Davidic king on the throne. That there's this man, Herod, and even more unlikely, and even more shocking than that is he's not even fully a Jew. He's half Jewish. So this is an illegitimate king sitting on the throne that doesn't belong to him. Now, The only reason that Herod was in power at this point is because the Romans needed to place somebody in there for stability in the region. See, the Jews were notorious for uprisings and for riots and for rebelling. They didn't want to be subjugated by the Romans any more than we would want to be. But yet, there was also rumors circulating around among the people that a Messiah was coming. You see, they knew the prophecies. They knew about Daniel. They knew about Daniel 7, where he prophesied the exact time period that the Messiah would come, and they were looking for him, and they knew he was coming. And in this climate of change and, and all of this expectancy, there was actually false messiahs that rose up and said, no, we're the one who's going to deliver the people, and they were squashed. The Romans 
came down and squashed them, and they realized that they needed a presence in Israel, so they put this king over the people of Israel, and he was ruthless. He was merciless, but he didn't begin that way. See, he didn't begin ruthless and merciless. He began as someone who wanted to please the people. He spent tons and tons and tons of money building the Jerusalem temple, the temple where Jesus would worship at. And in all regards, this was one of the ancient wonders of the world, this temple in Jerusalem. But yet, Herod was trying to play both sides of the aisle in that he was also building temples for the pagans, for the, for the Roman gods. So that really he wasn't accepted anywhere that he was. In fact, all of this building and projects that he was uh, undertaking, he had to raise taxes to more than 60% of a person's income. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in the 2016 election, but I can almost guarantee 60% is a little unlikely. Amen. (laughs) And after years of being rejected, after years of putting up with these many little rebellions, and after slipping into insanity, this man became the cold-hearted ruler that we read about in history. He was so evil that he killed many of his sons. He was scared that they were going to take over his throne. He was so maniacal that Rome even heard about his exploits. The Caesar in Rome is quoted as saying it would be better to be Herod's pig than his son. This is a bad dude. He loved power and he, he was so obsessed and so controlled by it that even his distant relatives he had killed. Now imagine what this guy would have thought when he heard about a a defenseless child born in Bethlehem, born king. He didn't earn it. He was born king. That was just who he was. He was meant to be king. And this goes against everything that Herod actually knew. See, Herod had lied his way. He had schemed his way. He had aligned himself with the Romans. He had killed people in order to get on top. He had stolen the throne from David's ancestors. And now the only thing standing in his way from achieving what he thought was his destiny was, was a defenseless child. And we, we know what he wanted to do, right? He had killed adults, so his survival instincts were kicking in and he was planning something. Maybe he knew about the prophecies, we don't know. Maybe he knew about the Messiah that was coming, but none of that was enough to motivate him to go and worship Jesus. He actually, he loved his throne so much that he wouldn't even leave it. He sent foreigners who brought the message of this coming king to go and do his work for him. He missed Jesus. He missed the true king. Now, we're here today, but we're nowhere near as bad as Herod. We are nowhere, this this guy is one of top 10 worst people that ever lived. There's no way that any of us are like Herod, and there's no way that I'm going to try to draw out an application between us and Herod, right? This guy was a maniac, and we're good people. We go to a great church. There's no way that we could ever be like this monster. But as I was thinking about it, I think I have one thing in common with us. Out of the millions of things that I am better than Herod, I think there's one thing that, that sometimes I share with him is, is that sometimes I miss Christ. Sometimes I don't experience him. Sometimes I don't 
feel the joy and the hope and the love and the peace that comes from Christ, just like Herod. See, this Christmas, I can guarantee you, I didn't experience the full weight of Jesus. I wasn't as joyful as I could have been. I wasn't as hopeful as I should have been. See, Herod missed Jesus, not because of the things that he hated, but because of the things he chose to love. It wasn't because of the things he was against that he missed Jesus. It was because of the wrong things that he was pouring himself into. It was because of the things he was for. And that that makes me wonder, is there something in my life that I'm loving that's wrong that's keeping me from experiencing Jesus? Is there something in my life that's keeping me from going to him and from turning to him and from worshiping him, from trusting him fully? Is there something wrongly in my life that I'm loving so much that that I'm not experiencing the full reality of the joy and the hope and the love that Jesus brings. We've all felt this, right? We've all been there where we've loved something too much and it was keeping us from Christ. If we love money too much, we won't be generous when it's time to give. If we love our time too much, we won't want to give it to people when they need it. If we love our children too much, then we won't trust God with our children. We'll trust ourselves. I can identify with this. I grew up constantly wondering if I was loved, if I was accepted. I, I wondered if my, if my parents loved me. This is nothing against my parents. It's just the way that I grew up feeling so that I promised myself when I became a parent, my kids would never feel that way. But yet what's funny is, is that that promise has not brought me a lot of joy. When my kids are bad and I get on to them and I have to punish them, and they look at me angrily, I'm, I'm secretly wondering, is this one of those moments where they're going to look back and they're going to blame me in the same ways that I've you know, blamed other people? Are they going to not experience the joy? And see, that thought has, has robbed me of my joy. That thought's not from God. I can let God have control of my kids. I can trust God with the leadership of my kids, but yet at times, I believe the wrong things. I believe it's all about me. It's all about my parenting and my skill, and God help my kids if that were true. <laughs> you see, any misplaced affection that we have, any misplaced hope, any love that we have in the wrong things are always going to rob us of the right thing, which is love for God. See, when we love the wrong things too much, we'll never be able to love the right thing enough, and that's Christ. But that's only the one way to miss Jesus. And I, and I don't know about you, but I've missed him plenty of times this way, but there's another way. There's another way that we can miss Jesus this season and beyond in 2016, and we have to go no further than the religious people, the Jews. Look at what it says in verse three. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Of course he was disturbed. But then it says that all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. If ever there was a time for Herod and Jerusalem to be on the same side, this certainly couldn't be the case. Why was the entire city of Jerusalem troubled about the news of their Messiah? This was the capital city of God's country. This was the nation that God loved. This this should have been an encouraging message that the Messiah was born, that, that he had come to take them out of their slavery to Rome. They'd been taken advantage of by Herod for years. This should have been great news to them. You see, they knew the prophecies. They knew their Bibles better than we do. And they were looking for a king, but yet when their king was born, they missed it. 
And we have to ask, how is it possible that they missed this? Again, they knew the Messiah was coming. They believed all the promises of old, but yet, when they heard these promises uttered on the lips of Gentiles, they couldn't believe it. They simply could not believe that someone other than an Israelite would be speaking about the coming of their king. They could not believe that these Gentiles had followed a star and that they'd used astrology to find Jesus. They couldn't believe it. It was completely outside of their thinking that this could have happened, and they dismissed it, and they discarded it, and they missed Jesus. See, Israel was a prideful nation, and in all of that celebration of their love for God, they began believing that God didn't love anybody else. They forgot that God's love extended to all people, and yet to remind them, God graciously sent wise men, Gentiles. He chose them to herald the message of his king because his message is for every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. And the Jews missed it. Look at verses four through six. It says, when Herod, or when he, Herod, called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Now, what I find fascinating is that when things are going bad, the world always turns to the religious people. The world always turns to the theologians. When we are crippled and we realize that we can't do it by the world system, by the world standard, the world always turns to God. Look at what happened in 9-11. Hundreds of thousands of people who had not really worshipped God were worshipping God once again because we were met with a moment of our greatest need and we could not do it on our own. And on the surface, these guys had all the right answers. They said the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. They knew it. They didn't even have to think about it. The prophecy was coming off their lips before the question was even finished. They knew all the right answers, but yet they didn't believe it. How do I know they didn't believe it? Because when the wise men left to go meet their king, nobody came with them. Nobody left Jerusalem to follow these Gentiles because they couldn't imagine that. They couldn't imagine a world where they were worshiping at the same time, same place as these Gentiles. They couldn't conceive of it, so they missed Jesus. The people for, that were looking for him the hardest thought of him the least. And it's here we see that knowledge is not enough, that a person can know all of the right answers, but yet still, still miss it. And for me, I'm in seminary, so this is terrible news, because I'm always being told all the right answers. It's not enough to know. It's not enough to know the answers, folks. It says even the devils in hell know, and they shudder. It's just not enough. The people here who are most interested in finding a Messiah were the ones who missed out. The people who knew their Bibles missed the one who it was the whole thing was about. They were the likely people, but they didn't get to experience God's unlikely love. Now, again, I want to be very clear here. Just like I want to be clear that we're not at all like Herod. I want to assume a few things that no one here feels like that they're really, really better than anyone else. I want to assume that, that you're not dealing with racism or hatred or that you're using your Bible as a weapon to harm people. I want to hopefully assume that you have not missed Jesus because of religiosity. But could it be that there's just one of us here today that could have experienced more of Jesus Christ but religion 
over commitment to dogmas and faith has robbed them of that experience. Is that possible? Is it possible that we could have missed Jesus by loving all the right things in the wrong way? Is that possible? See, these Jews, they loved all the right things and they missed the experience of Christ. They weren't lining up outside of the door to see him. They were sitting in their justified, sanctified living thinking that they were right. Is it possible that we could be loving all the right things, doing all the right things, and still missing Jesus? Is that possible? I know for me it is. I grew up reading the Bible. I'm from the South. It's like your first thing they give you as a baby. (laughs) I think it was the first book I ever read cover to cover. I read it in my little good news translation. When I got to seminary, they made fun of it because it was a paraphrase, but I'm... So it's a progression. But you know the one thing the Bible did not do for me? It didn't, it didn't curb my tendencies toward pride. I knew it. I'd read it. It didn't cause me to quit thinking too highly of myself. There were literally times when I had used God's word to make much of myself instead of bring much glory and honor to Christ. How can we know that we have this problem? How can we know that we've loved the wrong or the right things wrongly? How can we know? We need God's help with this. You see, the most dangerous part of religion is that it fools us. It fools us and lulls us into a slumber where we think that we've got all the answers and that we're content in our performance and that we're assured in our knowledge, that we're justified in our behavior. But the text reveals to us that they didn't even know that they missed it. They thought they were right and they sat knowing that they had all the right answers, but yet they missed Christ. This is a danger for us who have grown up in the church and who have loved Jesus to gain our identity from the Bible instead of gaining our identity from him. And yet the text tells us that 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 kind of living fools us sometimes and we don't even know that we have the problem. And again, I'm going to ask, is there something in us today that could be robbing us of the hope that we, can, that we have in Christ? Is there a performance, an identity is there a good deed that we're doing that makes us feel much about ourselves? Is there something that's, that's causing us to bank on our performance and miss the peace of Jesus? Is there something that's stealing our joy and it's a good thing? I don't know about you, but I have felt this many times. And if there's something for you, what is it? What is it? And you say, how can I know? You just told me that it eludes you. You just told me that you, know, you don't really know. I pray. Ask the Lord to reveal these things to you. Ask God to reveal the idols of of our heart. And he's faithful and he'll do that. So far what we've talked about, we've talked about two things. We've talked about that loving the wrong things will keep us from God, like Herod. We've talked about loving the right things in the wrong way, like the religious people. That too will keep us from God. But what I'm most excited about today is to remind all of us about the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're not satisfied with the relationship that you currently have with Jesus, there's good news. If there's something that's causing you to miss more of him than what you're wanting, then there's good news. 
See, we no longer have to love all of the wrong things because the right thing came to this world and we can give our love and our affections to him. We no longer have to chase after the good things to prove ourselves. We don't have to perform for anyone. We don't have to earn anything. Jesus Christ came and he earned it for us. There's nothing that we can do to make God happier with us than he is right now. And now we all know this. We've heard this. We've heard this for years, but do we feel it? Do we feel it? Do we feel that God is delighted with us when he looks at us? Do we feel that he's excited when he's with us? Do we feel that when we look in the mirror and we see all of our flaws and all of our imperfections that we have worth and that we have inestimable value because of what Jesus Christ has done for us? Do we feel that? Because it's true. The reality of Christmas, the reality of the Advent, the reality of Jesus coming to this earth is that you matter to God. It is a fact that not even the gates of hell can shake. We did not bear the scars for rigid obedience. He bore the scars that we deserved. He was obedient when we could not be obedient. And because of what this unlikely Savior did for us, we get to experience God's love. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is let that tidal wave crash upon you and sweep you away and carry you to places you never thought you would go. All you've got to do is sit down in the pool of God's love and just, and just rest. Rest from your struggles. Rest from your hurts. I'm loved. I'm loved. Say it. I'm loved. Each of you are fully and perfectly loved by God. And when you feel that, really feel that. You don't just know it. When you feel that, it causes something unlikely to happen inside of you. Now, in conclusion, I said I was going to talk about three people, so we got to hit the wise men. We're going to talk about the wise men and that how they responded to God in the right way. So verses 7 through 11, let's look at it. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, and he found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find the, him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child is born. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened up their treasures and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know what this tells me? That God pours out his love on unlikely people so that we can in turn respond and give that love back to God. We weren't capable of loving God before God first loved us. We didn't even know how. We were so dead in our sins, we didn't know what to do, but because God has poured his love out on us, we can in turn return that love back to God. The Bible says that these weren't the likely people that God loved. These wise men weren't likely. They were the most unlikely ones of them all. They, the Bible even says they were wise guys, but they showed up at the wrong city. They didn't have GPS, apparently. See, these were just a bunch of seekers. These were guys that, for a living, looked at the stars. They looked at the, the planets, and they looked at all of the signs in the sky so that they could figure out the things that were happening. And this wasn't the first time they had showed up bearing gifts. This is what these guys did. When Julius Caesar died, they showed up at the funeral because they said, we saw signs in the sky. I don't think they brought gifts. 
wasn't much to celebrate. When Nero was born, it says that they came bringing gifts because they saw signs in the sky. See, that was likely for them. Now, there were times when they didn't get it right. But in the times they did, it was great for advertising. This is what was likely to them. This is what they expected. They didn't expect what happened. God did something unlikely with these guys that they had no idea. They weren't prepared for. God took their natural information that could only get them so far. It got them to Jerusalem, but it didn't get them in front of Christ. They did all they could do. They discerned the signs in the sky. They did everything in the natural they could do, but they were missing Jesus still. It took God opening up and giving a little bit of his supernatural, opening up his word to finish the job. They couldn't get all the way to Jesus, just like we couldn't earn our way to Jesus, but yet when they heard the message from the scriptures, they were the only ones who believed. They're the only ones who had a simple faith. And they're the only ones whose hearts were filled with love and whose hearts were filled with worship. Now, isn't this our story? As we were wondering, looking for, for God, we're wondering what the purpose was in this life. We were wandering around until we met Jesus. And we don't know how he did it. I mean, we know he died on the cross, but how does that reality get into us? I mean, I don't, there's a lot of scholars who say a lot of things, but at the end, what I know is that at one point in my journey, God got me in front of the word of God, really got me in front of the word of God and pointed me to Jesus. And it was when I met Jesus that that reality broke into my life, that I saw how beautiful, how lovely, how wonderful he was, and I couldn't help but celebrate. I couldn't help but worship. See, sometimes it just takes a simple faith. It doesn't take praying a, a special prayer, doing a dance, shaking your leg. Whatever. I don't know what all the churches say that you're supposed to do. It just takes simple faith. It's just a simple faith that Jesus is who he said he is, and you believe it, and that reality comes crashing in on you. And as the doors of our heart are open, the Holy Spirit comes in and he gives us joy. He gives us peace. He gives us love. He gives us hope. He gives us all those things. We can't go chasing after these things from the world. The world's lost. They don't know where to find true hope, true peace, true love and joy. They can manufacture it for a little while, but they don't have those things. These are gifts from God. We can't earn this from religious performance. Trust me, I've tried that too. The only thing you and I can do is do exactly what the wise men did and just have a simple faith and just believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And as a result, we have been able to experience God's love poured out on top of us so that we can return that love back to God. In 2016, tomorrow, next week, will you have that kind of faith, that simple faith? Jesus is who he said he is. If you're not saved today, all you have to do is just believe Jesus is who he says he is. He's your Lord. He's your Savior. He did what you cannot do. He loved the way you cannot love, and he's willing to give you all of those things. Will you just have that simple faith? Will you respond to him today? Again, you don't have to do anything special. Will you just believe that? There's people who are going to be praying for you if, you if you'd like to pray with somebody, but will you just have that simple faith in Christ. But Christians, we're not off the hook either because what happens is, is that when the news of Jesus gets old or gets dusty and we put that up on the mantle, we have to also have a simple faith. We have to also understand that that reality is not old. 
that it's fresh and it's for us today. We can have joy, we can have peace, we can have love, we can have all these things because of what Jesus did. It's not old news, it's good news. And it's good news today. We have to see we're unlikely. And then we have to see that God loves us anyway. We are unlikely. We didn't deserve this, but God Almighty loves us anyway. Now, what should this lead us to do? How should we respond to this love that is poured out upon us who could not deserve it? What should we do? First, we have to know that it can't stop at knowledge. Remember, knowledge is not enough. On Monday morning, knowledge is not going to be enough to get you through. I want you to feel it. I want you to feel that reality breaking in upon you so that you literally feel the love of God through your Mondays and through your Wednesdays and through all of your days. And how do we do that? We pray. We ask God to make this news fresh today, tomorrow, and when we really understand just how unlikely we are, how sinful we are, we cannot help but realize just how unlikely his love is poured out on us. The second thing that this should cause us to do is that as we are filled with God's love, we can't help but give. You've probably been in love with somebody, head over heels in love with somebody, and no one had to come tell you, you know, you probably should be generous. You probably should buy her or buy him something. I mean, maybe there's somebody, but like when I fell in love, I was like, I want to do everything for that person. I just couldn't help it. My heart was filled with love. And as your heart is filled with love, will you give him your time? Will you give him your talents? Will you give him your treasures? Not because he doesn't have all these things. He's the creator of the universe. But where we give shows where our hearts is at. It's not like Genesis needs your time, treasures, and talents either. God's going to provide. What I'm just saying is that you will live a lifetime of, of being a giver. You won't be able to help it. You'll just give to anyone and everyone because that's just who you are. Because that's who he, Jesus is. His love is so messed with you that you can't help but pour it out on other people. See, that's really the hope of this whole series. That's the hope of everything we've been trying to say over the last five messages is that God loves unlikely people. And that unlikely love causes us to respond in unlikely ways so that every single person around us will be able to experience God's love. God doesn't love us just because we're special. He loves us to be lovers of other people. His love doesn't stop with us. It goes through us to the world. Let's pray.